Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, and hopefully all of you have sermon notes. Tonight we are going to start in verse 1 of chapter 26, but our main text is verses 26 to 30. You'll see that we're going to just do an overview of the chapter as we move through it. And, Ryan, if we can get that up there, or Wes, we can get that not there. The other one, Wes, if we can go back. Oh, there we go. Um, today, we are focusing on the death of Jesus Christ. Um, our theme is remembering the inaugural Lord's Supper. And I put up there the word inaugural because it was the initial Lord's Supper that the church continues to celebrate even through tonight, as we will be putting it into practice. The word inaugural is key. It's a little pet peeve of mine. I don't know. Uh, it was a side note. Whenever you have an event, like let's say it's a golf tournament or you have a bake-off or you have any type of event, sometimes people will announce it and say it's the first annual. That is not the proper way to present it. It is bad English. It's improper uh, way to reference it. It should always be the inaugural. And I just point that out because I want to make it clear that when you're talking about the inaugural, it's the first of that which follows, and after that, then you call it an annual, the second annual, the third annual, anyway. Inaugural, the key word, and this is the inaugural Lord's Supper. There's been many Passovers that's going to come out of the Passover meal. We're going to talk about that in a second, but it is the very first Lord's Supper, the very first communion supper. Now, all of this is tied to help us understand the death of Jesus Christ. As we celebrate Good Friday, we're looking back upon the death of Jesus Christ. And there are many ways that you can study the death of Jesus Christ. You can do a study on his actual time on the cross. Many of you know he had seven statements on the cross, and we've done that study before. It's a fascinating study. Or you can take time and you can study the death of Jesus Christ by looking at some medical journals that have been written on what crucifixion is and you tie it into different passages in the scripture and you understand the pain that Jesus Christ went through. Or you can study the unfair trial of Jesus and everything that led up to the crucifixion. And you who have studied the scriptures know that it's a six-part trial. The first three parts deal with the Jews and their leadership. The third part, the next three parts deal with the Romans. And that leads to the death of Jesus Christ. But tonight, we're not going to do that. We are going to be focusing on the meal, the, the Passover meal. And as a little side note, almost like a, as a topic that I could do a sermon on alone, is the fact that it is tied to a meal. And the very aspect of the fact that a meal is food. And if you never thought about it, it's almost like hiding in plain sight. One of the most important subjects throughout the Bible is food. And if you were to do a study in Genesis chapter 1, when God's creating the world, he's talking about the plants and the trees, they're good for food. And then when you go into chapter 2, it's explicit as we're learning about the garden that there are trees that are good for food. When you go to chapter 3, you've got a, the first sin, and it centers around food. When you go to the end of the Bible, in Revelation 19, you have the Lord's 
um, you have the the um, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then when we go into eternity, in chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, you have the river of the water of life, and it's lined with these plants that are producing fruit. And so the Bible from start to finish has food as a key element. And, and I was thinking about it because you can do this sermon where you can start to look at, in the Old Testament, all, almost right from the start, you've got some significant meals that play a key part in the history of the, of the Jews. And in chapter 14, you have Melchizedek bring out a meal, a celebratory meal for the victory that Abraham, I think it's Abram at that time, has, has just gotten a victory. And he brings in the, uh, the cup and the bread, and which many people say somehow, some way, since Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, prefigures what this very communion meal is all about. Then we go into an entire Levitical system that deals so much with food. Foods you can eat, foods you can't eat, and then foods that are sacrificed. When you come to the New Testament, it continues. You've got Jesus Christ talking about who you should invite to a meal. It's in Luke chapter 14, and I wonder how often do we all take that into practice. It's not that you can't have friends over, but in Luke 14, Jesus talks about the fact that we're to be reaching out to our neighbors, people who are unpleasant sometimes to be with, but to bring them into our homes to share a meal because meals are so important. And then throughout his teaching, Jesus emphasizes food. You, you go in Matthew chapter 12 and 13, and you see him teach that a good tree makes good fruit, i.e. fruit that's food. You see you have to be good soil to have good fruit, and he wants you to be good soil. And he wants you then to be good seed so you can make good plants. All that is about food. And then he feeds the 5,000 in chapter 14 and the 4,000 in chapter 15. All of that is centered around biblical lessons that were teaching us that Jesus is God because he can make food out of nothing. And again, food is so important. And that's not even getting into all the meals that Jesus has with his enemies, his sinners, and his disciples. And all of that for bringing together for you to understand when we talk about this meal that Jesus has, the Passover meal, it is not by accident that he has used this to teach us so much about his death. And I want you to think about that, not just tonight, but in years to come, how a meal was used. And it's not just an ordinary meal. It's a covenant meal. We'll talk about that as we go through. Look for that explicitly as we, as we go through the text in 26 to 30. But we're at chapter 26, verse 1, and what I want you to do is just to understand, I want to set the setting. We're in the last week of Christ's life. We know from all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we've come in to Jerusalem. Jesus has come into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry. Mark chapter 11, he comes in, and nothing happens. It's the sin of omission. He is rejected. He teaches a little bit on that Sunday, and I believe it was a Sunday. There's a, a movement out there, and I want to make it a Monday. I don't think that is all. We're not going to get into that. I don't think that's correct. He teaches some Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and I believe when we come to verse 1, it's still Tuesday. 
So look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished all these words, some of the teaching that has been recorded, it says, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So after two days, I believe that will be Wednesday, Thursday. Jesus Christ is um, going, to, going to be crucified on a Friday, but it's going to be after these two days. Now, I could be wrong. It could be like it's Wednesday and then, you know, because sometimes we get into these three days after three days, but that's at least how I'm putting it together right now. But look at verse 2, two or verse 3. He says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. And so we sort of get this little background, and what I want you to understand is, first and foremost, if I, I'm not going to do an explicit exposition of all this text, but I want you to just be cognizant of the fact that Jesus knows he's going to die. What we're going to celebrate as we look at the death of Jesus Christ and all that it means for us is we must just always remember that it is intentional, that it is not by accident. It is reprehensible in a pit, a lie from the pit that teaches that Jesus was someone that was trying to act like the Messiah and it got away from him. And the next thing you know, the, the, the crowds turned on him and he couldn't stop it and, and he just didn't know what to do. And so his writer, his, his disciples, in retrospect, made this whole story up <laughs> that he knew that he came to die, which is just a bunch of hooey. But it's more important for us to recognize Jesus has intentionally put himself in a place to die to pay the penalty for our sins. And so when you also look at this section, you see in verse 4 a, a, a theme that is repeated earlier in the book of Matthew. One that is shocking. If you go and you study and you see how often it says how much Jesus was hated and why they wanted to kill him. It is something that we should never forget. That Jesus Christ has done numerous miracles that might be countless. 100,000 miracles. The Gospel of John tells us that he has done so many miracles that you can't even fill the books of the world with it. How many miracles are in the Gospels? I think it's 33 to 36. I don't, those ones have been specifically chosen for us to understand who Jesus is. But the reason I'm pointing out verse 4 is you have to understand. It is preponderance of evidence. It is so, there is so much evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. God come in the flesh beyond a shadow of a doubt. And the reason they want to kill him is that Jesus Christ has come to rule. And we learn in the Gospel of John, and we're not going to turn there, but you turn there. And they say later, you can turn there later, they, the Jews know that if Jesus rules, they're not going to be ruling the Jewish leadership. And they don't want that. They want to keep their positions. They want to keep their authority. And it's just mind-boggling. And if you ever need a proof case that sin makes no sense, that sin is illogical, 
the, this verse 4 is perfectly tied to that because he has never done anything wrong. He's always been kind. He's always been gentle. And he's healed the blind. He's healed the lame. He's brought people back from the dead. And yet they want to kill him. They want to kill him. And they succeed because sin makes no sense. As we pick up the background, we see in verse 6, a story that I just wanted to bring out and keep before you. It says in verse 6, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and, and, they, and said, Why the waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother this woman? For she has done a good deed to me, for you always have a, the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done for will also be spoken of in memory of her. It's a wonderful story. This is the woman, out of all the people, who somehow overheard Jesus talking about his coming death and it is the only one that has stepped out and said, i got to get you ready for death. Now, who is this woman? This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. When we, we learn about this from other gospel accounts, and, and I'm not going to have you turn there as well, but it's interesting, we're going to talk about the people who come to the tomb on Sunday. She's never one of them. She's never one of them. And just, it's a reminder that this woman, of all the people that we know that are in the Gospels, got it and understood. Ironically, whenever she's pictured, she's often pictured at Jesus' feet. She's a woman who was godly and worshipped and, 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 and really loved the Lord. The deception of being upset was really led by Judas. We also learn from the other Gospel accounts. It seems in this one that all the disciples were upset, but it's really being instigated by one who is being a, uh, a deceptive agent amongst the, the, the group. He is a horrible individual. He's a liar. He's, he is a thief. And sometimes we have to watch out. That is a reality of the, of the truth, is that sometimes the, the tares come into the church. And and not saying that that passage is about that, but the reality of it is, is Judas was a thief, and he really didn't have a true belief in Jesus Christ. And so, when we move on from this story, I just wanted you to always be thinking about what that Mary did. We pick up a rather long section, and I'm just going to pick out some points after this, after we go through 14 through 25. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray, betray Jesus. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to pray for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near, and I am to eat. Keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table 
with the 12 disciples. And they were eating. And he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. Verse 23. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. And the Son of Man is to go, just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. So just a couple of points. Number one, Judas is pointed out. And, and I again want to emphasize Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Jesus knew that Judas was betraying, betraying him. If Jesus was really um, all about self, he would have then said, man, I'm hightailing it out. I'm heading out of the city right now. I'm going to get out. But we have to remember as we study about the death of Jesus Christ, again, that key word, it is intentional. It is on purpose. He did this. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That became sin. The one who goes to the cross and dies to pay the penalty for our sin does it intentionally. And how much that should drive our love and our worship of him. When you look at Judas, you must always look at the fact that we have a great teaching on human responsibility. And what do I mean by human responsibility? Is yes, we believe in the doctrine of election here. I get that. I understand it. But there is throughout the scripture as well the concept of human responsibility and how we are to react to the gospel. Judas is responsible for his actions. When Jesus gives that line in verse 24, when he says it would have been good for that man if he had not been born, it is one of the greatest complexities for me in my understanding of Scripture because I recognize even from the book of Psalms how he was destined to do this, and yet he is being held responsible. He is a person who will be judged for his sin. And what a warning to all people who attend church, who listen to the gospel messages, who listen to messages of truth from the Bible, and yet are really not born again and only go through the motions. Nobody can be hot hidden. God knows where all of us are. And yet I would even say Jesus died for Judas in the sense that it was an offer to him, but one that obviously he never took hold of because of his sin. He is a model of not playing games with God. So also, when you look at Judas, I believe this whole story of how he gets identified is very critical so that I think that if Judas didn't hang himself, and maybe there could have been a story that Judas got killed inadvertently, I think it was very important that the disciples knew uh, knew, and I know it started with just John and those closest to him, to Jesus, that initially knew, but they would have passed it on. It would have been very important that they under, understood who the traitor was. So I think that was very, very key. When we look at this site, and they says, and it says, in, um, go and prepare a room for me, in a, uh, go, go and prepare a place for me, we learned from Mark and Luke, that it was in an upper room. That upper room is in this location. Um, this is a Syrian Orthodox church by the Zion Gate in Jerusalem. And 
the site where Jesus was at, the, the, the building that Jesus was actually in has been destroyed. This building was built in the 12th century, but this would have been the area of the upper room. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, there were early first, second church writings that helped identify it. And one of the key things that identified it, and if I got this picture, this is a picture I took myself from being there, is, does anybody remember, for those who are in Israel, remember what was right here? Down in here is David's tomb. They found an inscription that cites David, the king of Israel, was right there. And that's how they, they tie this in to this area. So it's this space that is in the Orthodox Church that would have been the place of the upper room. And then this is how they were eating. That's Professor Doug Bookman. That's our elder, Carl Hale. That's his daughter, Evelyn. I don't know. I'm, I'm in the back somewhere. And so they, they, they would have been leaning like that while they ate the dinner. And so it was um, by the Zion Gate in Israel. So they're in this upper room, and they're celebrating the Passover. And you see when verse 19 says, the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. The Passover was a very important meal to the Jews. You can go back to the book of Exodus when the very first Passover was held, and it was a meal that reminded the Jews of how God delivered them from what enemies. Remember, they were prisoners and they were held slaves in Egypt. And so God institutes this meal with explicit instructions. And sometimes you hear that the Passover is called a Seder meal, right? And often you hear that, do you know what it means? All it means is an order. Seder means order in Hebrew. And it's a, it's a meal that had a lot of precise things that they had to do. It's interesting as we celebrate the Lord's table, the communion table. We don't get into all of that. We're just going to see Jesus pull bread and drink from it, but we're not going to go into any of the Seder. We're not going to go into any of the order, and so it's important that we understand that, and then it's also important to see in verse 19 that it was the Passover meal, and this is something that we all must understand because in dying and, and tying his death to the Passover, it is absolutely ingenious the way God pulled this off. Now, obviously, through history, he knew what he was doing with the Jews being slaves in Egypt and then having the Passover instituted. But what makes this even, to me, so much greater is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make it clear that Jesus ate the Passover. And this is something I've shared with you before. When you study the Gospel of John, and Jesus is going through his trial in John chapter 18, it's very clear that the Passover isn't, has not been eaten. And the answer is that the Jews of the north were on a different timetable. It is estimated, I think it was the ancient writer Josephus who said there were up to 250,000 lambs sacrificed at this time. The brook Kidron would actually turn red from all the blood that flowed from the temple at this time. To process 250,000 sacrifices, if you can imagine us doing that here, would be enormous. And so the Jewish leadership said, we're not going to push it. You guys in the north, remember the whole 
Assyrian captivity, splitting the nation, then the Babylon, Babylonians in the south, split the nation. And over time, the Jews in the north started doing their days from sunrise to sunrise. All right? That's the way they did it. And if you ever get confused and you wonder which one was which, with the Jews in the south, sunset to sunset, know that I think that's the more biblical way. Sunset to sunset. How do I know that? Because when you all go back to Genesis chapter 1, how does God do it? He goes day, night, and then day. Night and then day. Whereas we would, I would typically think in our culture, day and the night. Day and the night. So anyway, I just always point that out. That Jesus did eat a sack. He did eat a Passover meal by the northern Jews' schedule. And the genius of this is that he participates, he institutes this supper that emphasizes his death. But the very next day, when he is being killed, when does he die officially? He goes on the cross, we believe, about 9 a.m., but it's around 3 o'clock that he dies, right when the Jews of the south were killing their Passover lambs. Just absolutely ingenious, isn't it? Absolutely ingenious. And so... With that understanding, when we look at the Passover, it was a Passover that Jesus ate. And let's get into it. And as he pulls out these elements to make us understand his death. Verse 26. Now, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And so what he has done is just taken bread and... You cannot take any significance of the fact that he broke it. Um, because some people want to say this was in contradiction to the fact that, you know, you have the Psalms that says none of his bones would be broken. It's just the fact that he's giving his, this illustration that this is symbolic of his body. And he wants them to take it and eat it. Simple as that. We're going to explain that in a second. Then when you see in verse 27... And when they had taken the cup and given thanks, he said to them, drink from it, all of you. So he takes a cup from the meal, because um, we know that there were several drinks that they had in that meal, but now he's just taking it, and he's going to start something new. He takes a cup, and it seems like he passes this cup around. That seems to be in the, the indication. And verse 28, for this is my blood. So this is where the connection. He said the, the bread represented his body, the cup with the, with the drink in it represents his blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wow, that's explicit. And there's so much that's wrapped up in there. You have to see the word covenant. Covenant is a promise that is beyond just a normal promise. If Becky calls me up and says, Mike, on the way home, will you pick up some milk from the grocery store? And I say, yeah, I promise I'll get it. I'll get it. That's not a covenant. A covenant is, as we learn from the book of Hebrews, um, I think it's chapter 9, talks about you have to have death for a covenant. It's something absolutely serious. And so this is what makes this a covenant meal. This is something unique. And one of the things that we often do in our church is, is make it clear that we're a dispensational church. We look at the scriptures with a, 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 a hermeneutic that makes it, that is a what we call a grammatical historical, a normal reading of the Bible. We don't read things in and, and, and make um, covenants where they're not. 
And, and, I, and sometimes we try to downplay covenants but we've, because of what covenant reform theology will do. But what I want us to always remember is that covenant theology, is, covenant understanding is very important. And understanding how serious covenants are. God gives us covenants so that we really can trust him. Not because he's a liar. And this is a, a thought that I always try to get across to you. Is that God tells us in the book of Hebrews, I believe it's chapter six, but if I'm wrong, it could be anywhere from six to ten, is that he tells us about the covenants because he wants us to know that he realizes that mankind lies. Man lies to one another. And so in that passage in the book of Hebrews, he talks about the fact that I'm going to give you these covenants so that you really can trust me all the more, which is like, why would you ever need to do that, God? Your word is enough. Well, because God really wants us to be able to trust in him. It, it, it's, it's a grace on God's part that he even gives us covenants because he doesn't have to. So th- this covenant for forgiveness of sins, which we understand Jesus' death pays the penalty. And the pouring out of his blood represents his death. It's very important we understand we're talking with the pouring out of his blood, it's representing his death. And he pays the penalty because the wages of sin is death. And all of us have to understand that death is a spiritual death tied to our physical death. The wages of sin is death. And, and death is horrible. Death is horrific. It separates us from the people we love. And when we understand there's a thing called a second death, it's a place that's called hell. It's horrific because of the torment. Nobody wants to face death from a physical as well as from a spiritual standpoint. And the only way to get out of going to hell is to have the debt you owe. Forgiveness talks about a debt being forgiven. And Jesus institutes it. So then he says in verse 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you know in all the resurrection appearances, Jesus eats bread, Jesus eats fish, but he never drinks. We never see him drinking. And then verse 30 says, And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And we don't know explicitly what hymn they, sent. they sang. A lot of people believe that it would have been anywhere from Psalm 118 to Psalm 120. Psalm 118, we just celebrated, right? You all know that. It's the Messianic Psalm with Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in it. Lord save. So what do we pull out of this? Number one, fill in the blank. We see the provision. If you have your sermon notes, You see the provision of his body and blood. We get blessed by this. How? Well, what's going on here is not cannibalism. What Jesus is doing is symbolic. It is not what the theologians call transubstantiation, where the elements turn into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, nor consubstantiation, as if the elements were surrounded by his actual body and blood. It's very clear from this text and other texts, we're never actually eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We are seeing a symbolic element. And what these elements represent is what we understand as substitutionary atonement. Atonement means to make God happy, to to get rid of the penalty. When Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, and drink all of it, you know, this is for you. And we get the instructions later in 1 Corinthians 11 that we understand that what Jesus is doing is showing us that 
He is paying the penalty that we owe. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you owe a lot of money and you owe a great debt. I think one of the greatest passages in the Bible is Matthew 18, when Jesus talks about the, the illustration of uh, the man that owes, uh, was it 10,000 talents? Billions of dollars, if not trillions, all the different illustrations, and it's forgiven. And God wants us to understand that is a good picture of how our sins are forgiven, all the debt that we owed. That's what we should always remember. When Jesus dies on the cross, he is paid with his life something that we all owe. And you say, big deal. Right now, you might think nothing of it. But when you're facing hell and you're facing eternity and judgment and you're shaking in your boots, then you'll remember if you reject the gift of Jesus Christ. Second, you see that when we see the picture of taking in this food, I do believe there is a symbolic reference to the ongoing sustaining nature of Jesus Christ. That when we look at the instructions later in 1 Corinthians 11, when we are reminded of the fact that we are to be always abiding with Jesus, obviously the death of Jesus Christ once for all, I'm just trying to say that there's a reason food is used. And I think it's a reminder that all that we are is sustained by Jesus Christ. And so I want us to remember that when we look at the, the elements that are pictured here, the provision that Jesus Christ is one who constantly is there providing for us. And then I want us to always remember, as 1 Corinthians 11 will also teach, that this allows us, when we practice communion, and we'll do it tonight, is a good time to remember as a memorial what Jesus Christ did for us. It is a good time for us just to remember. And as we remember that he paid the penalty for us, and we have this memorial, it's almost as if we're remembering a funeral service from years gone by, that we remember there is no free lunch. One of the greatest economic books that has ever been written was a book by a man named Milton Friedman, a guy from Chicago, back in the middle 1980s. And he wrote this book, and it was called There's No Free Lunch. And the fact that you can never take someone out to lunch and pay for it, and you, know, it's, you say, well, this is a lunch, it's on me. Well, the reality of it is, is yes, someone has paid for it. You may not have paid for it, but someone else did. And we must always remember all the blessings and all the wonderful things we get from heaven is because somebody paid a debt that we owed that we could never pay, and that's Jesus. Second, what I want us to always remember from this is that we get the promise. Uh, this promise, this covenant, is something that we should always remember, is something that we can go into great study. Like I said in Hebrews 6 through 10, 8 through 10 goes into great details. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, you should all be aware of it. This last supper is the end of the Mosaic covenant as Jesus is bringing an end to the Mosaic Covenant. And now we're seeing this new covenant that we understand that Jeremiah talked about come to play. And it's an agreement that you can always trust in. Today, we live in a world in which people are always, always backing out on their word. You know, one of the things that hurts me so much is watching people I love and people I know get betrayed by people people pulling the rug out from under them, people who've been in business and all of a sudden a business partner lies and, and maybe leaves the business, steals half the money. People are in relationships and people back out on their, their, their commitments to one another. When we look at this promise, 
we must always remember Jesus didn't have to give a covenant, but he did because he wanted us to be so secure. It's a promise that you should just rest in and rejoice in. Then we should see always that in the middle of this meal, verse 29, when Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom, as we've shared here over and over, we're not in the kingdom yet, but God's plan is to have a future coming kingdom. I don't know exactly when. I've been looking as to when are we going to drink it. Is it the marriage supper of the Lamb? Is that when we're going to have this drink? But I do know we're going to drink. For all who are believers tonight, there's going to be some celebration in eternity. And the plan is that there is going to be a drink in the future. And which all, always, when you get down and you get discouraged, you should know there's a plan. That Jesus has a plan. Jesus wasn't at this meal saying, man, things have gotten away from me. I don't know what I'm going to do. No, his plan was to die for us. And his plan was to allow the time until he comes back and institutes his kingdom. The kingdom that we discussed in Revelation 20, Isaiah 65, and Isaiah 66. It is a plan. And we must always trust in that plan. And in the midst of despair, in the midst of discouragement, and for the disciples, he wanted them to reach back always to remember, wait a second, we had that meal. And it was a special meal. And he started this whole new communion thing. But he said, we're going to drink again. And I want you to always be thinking about that. We are going to drink in heaven with him. It's part of the plan. And then lastly, just the reality that there's praise. You know, I... I thought it was a key part of the meal. Um, the, it's not just tacked on at the end. I, and if I was putting in a different order, maybe I would put it at the first. Like, oh, we praise God, and then we go into the details and the meat of the subject matter. But, you know, it was a great way to end. And I know tonight we're going to sing a hymn. It, it is not, they're not singing, row, row, row your boat. It's a hymn. And there's a reason it says a hymn. It's a praise. And like I said, they could have sang either Psalm 118, 119, 120, or some other song. We were talking about it in our elder meeting this week, how it's fascinating how the music, the actual music for the psalms has been lost. And I don't know if that's a, because God just wanted each culture to have its own you know, music. But however they sang it, whatever tune they went to, they sang it. And, and it was a song of great praise. And, and in the midst of this meal that was foreshadowing his death, he wanted them to be praising God. And that's exactly what they did. So, our time to celebrate is now. Our time to remember is now. We're in that long line of people who have been practicing a remembrance of this meal since that day. We don't know when the actual second one ever was held after this one, explicitly. But we do know the, from the early church time on till today, if you can imagine, ever since, well, I think, 30 AD when Jesus was crucified, till today, it's been practiced. If you'll turn in 1 Corinthians 11, here I have said before that this is the key passage for instructions outside of the four Gospels. And it's in 1 Corinthians 11. We get the instructions, and as I always state, this is a practice for believers if you don't know if you're a born-again believer has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, don't participate. Children, it's up to your parents, I believe, if you should be participating. We leave it up to them. But what we understand, what we understand is that 
out of this celebration, we're going to remember the provision, we're going to remember the promise, we're going to remember the plan, and we're going to remember the praise. Verse 23, the Apostle Paul instructs the church, and he says this. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And remember that word for body, what it referenced? It doesn't reference our body. It references Jesus' body. And the fact that we have to understand exactly who he is and what he did. He was God come in the flesh. Did Jesus have to die? Absolutely not. He could have at any moment said, ah, this is just too much for me. I'm not really into this. You guys are all jerks. I don't like you. Many of you are going to um, just turn your back on me within a few hours. We're going to have all these people who were saying, Hosanna, 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 be calling for Barnabas in just two days uh, or in a day. But he didn't do that. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf intentionally. And, and so we must always remember the incredible sacrifice that Jesus gave intentionally for us. And so as the men come forward for our preparation for communion, let's just pray and start contemplating and thinking about what Jesus has provided for us. So Father, I just thank you. I thank you for sending Jesus, and I, we thank you for what Jesus did for us. We're overwhelmed by the reality of all that Jesus had at his disposal. Other passages talks about angels he could have called upon. His own power he could have used and thwarted the Roman soldiers, made fools of the Jewish leadership. He could have just easily come down off the cross when they were mocking him. And yet we know that he was allowing death to come upon him so that he could pay a penalty that we never could pay ourselves. Father, I don't know how we can all really comprehend, comprehend hell and we can all understand the horrors of it. And as much as we often want to have our own independence and do our own thing, we realize that people who turn their back on you are deserving of such this penalty, a penalty of isolation and weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of pain that is unending. It is incomprehensible. And tonight we are just memorializing what you have done, Jesus. So thankful for the fact that you paid this penalty. We hate the fact that there is the horror of the pain that you went through. The concept of a crucifixion is beyond our understanding of in the tolerance that a human body has to endure pain and what you endured. But we thank you. We thank you. And I'm praying, God, that as we go through each of these elements, that we think about the sacrifice you gave. Amen.